a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome aboard. Yes, indeed, I am back at it, shoveling light and truth in your direction. And what you do with it, well, that's up to you. There is no requirement that you accept it, embrace it, agree with it, or anything like that. I am glad you're part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers, though. And and if you're if you're new to wrong think, I understand it can be a little bit daunting because after all, this requires that you step out of uh, the cadence of you know so-called polite society and start to start marching to the beat of your own drum. But take a look around you. Look at the way things are headed right now. And ask yourself, would I really be better off, you know, finding safety in the herd? Or is this a time to stand on my own feet, even if it's uncomfortable? To speak the truth, even if my voice shakes? I know how I would answer that question, but hey, I'm not going to answer it for you. I do have some great food for thought for you today, though. We're going to spend a little time today talking about uh, what, what more could our government do in America to consolidate its power over us? I, that's a dangerous question to ask, right? That's like, what, what else could go wrong? Well, James Bovard actually has an excellent article about the coming IRS reign of terror. And if you think, well, come on, that's stretching, you know, consider the political class right now is flexing pretty hard for the American people. They want us to know we are in charge. We can make you do whatever we want. And the IRS is a very handy way to do that because they, they come in through your pocketbook, not through your front door but they're every bit as destructive as any other government agency. Also, we're going to talk about whatever happened to Disney. Do you remember a time where you a kid who grew up watching the wonderful world of Disney? It was, it was safe. Disney could be counted on to be family-friendly, non-politicized, just a great source of wonder and entertainment for children. When they said Disneyland is the happiest place on Earth, they actually meant it. Not anymore, though. Apparently, the Disney Corporation's taken a deep dive into racial hatred. They, they got woke along the way. We'll talk about what that means. Over the weekend, uh, we celebrated the uh, birthday of F.A. Hayek. If that's a name you do not know, if you've never read The Road to Serfdom, I would suggest that's a book that could, could definitely expand your mind in all the right ways. And one of the first steps to loosening the stranglehold politics has over your individual life is to recognize that the real battle isn't between the left and the right or even conservatives and progressives. It always comes back to the individual versus the collective. And F.A. Hayek was very, very clear in making this distinction. And uh, Larry Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education has a marvelous tribute to him that was published over the weekend. We'll share that. By the way, I've noticed this over the years, and I've been guilty of doing this, and I'm not even ashamed of it, but uh, I've noticed people get upset when they are confronted with some of the growing similarities between current America and Weimar Germany in the 1930s. And I'm the one who's, you know, helping make these comparisons. It's because I made the mistake of, well, paying attention, more importantly, also of reading a book called They Thought They Were Free, The Germans, 1933 to 1945, by Milton Meyer. It's a super powerful book because he talked to average German citizens about how 
the Third Reich came into power, how step-by-step, incrementally, things fell apart. And, you know, we sit back and wonder, how could a, you know, educated, first-world nation like that of people be led astray by a madman? And, of course, the answer is it didn't happen all at once. It happened, you know, little by little. And when they realized something was wrong, by the time enough people went, ooh, this is not good, it was too dangerous to speak up. So people get upset with that. And I understand, it's, that's, a, that's a painful truth. That is not something any of us really want to consider. And yet every person I've ever recommended the book, They Thought They Were Free, by Milton Meyer, has come back to me and said, dude, that's talking about us. It sounds like he's describing us and our attitudes today. So I I get it. You know, nobody wants to be compared to, well, they were Nazis. Why would you compare us to that? Okay, so today we're going to take something a little bit different. What if we compared the former Soviet Union and how it became Sovietized to what's happening in America today? Now, if you're thinking, ah, good, finally we're safe. Well, we'll see that the American dream is, you know, safe and secure and our freedoms as safe as they've ever been. No. Victor Davis Hanson actually explains in 10 easy steps how we're being Sovietized this one actually hit me about as hard, maybe maybe even a little harder than the, the comparison between what happened with the, the Weimar Republic. Crazy stuff. And if there's time, I'm going to share with you an article. Uh, this, this came out uh, on French television, I believe, over the weekend. Uh, boy, the German government right now is locking down hard, enforcing mask mandates, punishing people if they go out in public or they stand too close or whatever. I mean, they're taking their, their COVID restrictions very, very seriously. And people who are opposed to this, the the so-called anti-maskers, but these are the normal people, people who just want to live their lives and breathe freely, have begun invoking the legacy of legendary Nazi resistor Sophie Scholl, one of my heroes. And the German government is panicking. How dare you co-opt this? And they're they're trotting out people, you know, "This this, this is disrespectful to those who died in the Holocaust. And it's like, no. Pointing out totalitarianism or totalitarian actions is never an affront to its victims. It's an attempt to avoid more victims, and they're right on. The people who are invoking her legacy are right on the money. And I guess you can sometimes judge your success by the people who are most bothered by your efforts, and those who are bothered by it are the people who go, wait, she's, she's pointing to us and saying what we're doing is wrong. Or they are pointing to us and using her example to show that what we're doing is wrong. And they're right. It's, it's, it's wrong. And it needs to be called out. Let's go back to the coming reign of terror from the IRS. This is from James Bovard, one of the most cogent writers on what's going on in Washington, D.C. these days. Now, I hope, I sincerely hope you don't spend a lot of your time just focusing on the negative coming out of Washington. As, uh, as my friend Kurt Mercadante puts it, if you're spending your time being angry or upset with other people or institutions and whatnot, you're not doing it right. A person who's living a free life should, I mean, you should be aware of it, and maybe what you're aware of is upsetting, but if you're spending time focusing on building that upset and justifying, this is why I'm angry, that's not good. It's not healthy. We'll talk more about that later. Bovard says the power to tax has long conferred the power to destroy political opponents. But in the glorious era of President Joe Biden, all previous cases of government abuse of power are being expunged, at least by the media, and Biden supporters, that's why it's supposedly safe to vastly increase the power of perhaps the most feared federal agency, the Internal Revenue Service. 
After announcing his endless wish list for new federal spending, Biden told Congress last week, I made it clear, I've made clear that we can do it without increasing deficits. So Biden believes he's found a goose that will lay golden eggs for federal revenue, and that is a new army of IRS agents to hound Americans and corporations to pay far more taxes. Now, the Washington Post reported the single biggest source of new revenue in the plan comes from from dramatically expanding the clout of the nation's tax agency. Slate reported Biden wants to fund a massive upgrade to the American welfare state by making the IRS great at audits again. But the agency Biden seeks to expand and unleash has an appalling record. As author David Burnham noted into A Law Unto Itself, the IRS and the Abuse of Power, in almost every administration since the IRS's inception, the information and power of the tax agency has been mobilized for explicitly political purposes. And he talks about how FDR used the IRS to harass newspaper publishers opposed to the New Deal, including William Randolph Hearst. FDR also dropped the IRS hammer on political rivals like populist firebrand Huey Long and radio agitator Father Coughlin and prominent Republicans like former Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon. President John F. Kennedy spurred the IRS to launch the Ideological Organizations Audit Project, which targeted right-leaning groups, including the the Christian anti-communist crusade, the American Enterprise Institute, and the Foundation for Economic Education. Ha! That is one of the one of the best organizations out there. But oh, we got to check them out, and make sure they're not doing something too radical. Nixon administration officials gave the IRS a list of official enemies. In the words of a presidential John presidential assistant John Dean, to use the available federal machinery to screw our political enemies. Wow. Congress enacted legislation to severely restrict political contracts between the White House and the IRS, and it goes on and on. The Clinton administration used it. The Obama administration used it. Crazy stuff. And I mean, I, I've heard it seriously suggested, and actually I, I, I think there may be some merit to this. One of the things you and I may have to learn to do in the days ahead is to adjust our earnings and to deliberately earn less money than we are capable of earning just to beat the IRS at its own game. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? But if you want to if you want to succeed, government is demanding it gets a cut of your happiness. I really wish I wasn't sharing bad news like this. I mean, it's this is this is not the most encouraging thing. There are things you can do. But most importantly, be aware. Know what's going on and don't stick your foot into a bear trap inadvertently or even on purpose or on a dare. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Okay, welcome back to the show. So the article I mentioned from James Bovard about the coming... IRS reign of terror. By the way, that's well-chosen words. <laughs> we have some French Revolution-type conditions starting to uh, emerge around us, and it's it's the folks in power that think, I am so righteous. I am so right that there is no such thing as right and wrong. I can do whatever I want, and you have to submit to it. You have to agree with me, and if I don't think you agree strongly enough, then it's in my interest to get rid of you. That's a scary way to think, but uh, it's it's happening. 
So you better be aware of it and, and know what you're doing. By the way, the link is in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. You'll also find links to subscribe to the podcast. You can become a monthly patron or donor if you'd like. Every dollar that uh, that listeners like you donate help keep me focused absolutely on finding and uh, disseminating the best content that I can. And, and I thank those who are doing this currently. I thank those of you who are considering becoming a supporter. Do you remember growing up watching Disney? I mean, look, our, our Sunday night routine, <clears throat> at least in our home, was to sit down and watch the wonderful world of Disney. Pop some popcorn. I mean, it was it was kind of a family ritual, but we loved it. And, you know, sometimes they'd show Disney movies. They had Disney specials and whatnot. Great stuff. I saw an article today that really grabbed my attention, and this is from Andrea Widberg from The American Thinker. The title is The Disney Corp Has Taken a Deep Dive into Race Hatred. And yes, Disney has become woke. She says, going back to the late 1920s, every single child raised in America has intersected in some way with products from Disney. We've watched the movies and TV shows, sung the songs, worn the clothes, visited the theme parks. Through it all, Disney stood for wholesome family entertainment. Now, that's no longer the case. Disney is a hardcore leftists corporation pushing its politics on children and training its employees to be white-hating racists or self-loathing white people. She says it's time to give up Disney. During Walt Disney's tenure, his company also generated propaganda. Behind all the wonderful entertainment, the company was pushing several themes. Heterosexual love is real. The nuclear family matters. American patriotism is important. And God is a beneficent presence in our lives. Many parents and grandparents buying Disney videos for their children or taking family trips to the theme parks still operate under the mistaken impression that that's still the case. And they're half right. Disney is still generating propaganda, but it's about race and gender in ways many parents may not support. She says, just the other day we learned that Disney's Pixar is planning to introduce a so-called transgender girl character for its next Toy Story movie. So this means it's going to have a boy who thinks he's a girl as a character in a movie aimed at little children. And keep in mind, Disney also focused on gay characters in Onward and Out. Now, it turns out that these forays into pushing the cultural window farther and farther left are mere bagatelles compared to what's going on behind the scenes. Journalist Christopher Rufo has become the go-to person for whistleblowers who want to expose their employers' deep dives into critical race theory. And he received a doozy of a blown whistle about what's happening in the Disney corporate offices which are forcing their employees to embrace critical race theory and gender madness. How about that? Now she points out there is no real difference between critical race theory and old-time eugenics. While the latter came up with stupid, scientific-sounding, race-hating palaver about blacks being racially inferior, critical race theory does the same, only it claims that whites are racially inferior. Both are evil doctrines. Eugenics paved the way for Hitler, who was inspired by the racial laws Democrats passed in the South. And she says it's worrisome to contemplate what critical race theory will inspire. Andrea Woodberg says that Disney employees are being bullied into believing that race, an immutable part of every person, is the ultimate determining factor about that person. At the same time, they're being taught that a person's sex, which is another immutable factor, is infinitely malleable based on feelings. 
Moreover, as you read through this nonsense, you'll recognize it's simply using racism and sexual identity disorders as a vehicle for Marxist socialism. And she's got links here to a couple of the tweets from Christopher Rufo. Scoop, the Walt Disney Corporation claims that America was founded on systemic racism, encourages employees to complete a white privilege checklist, and separates minorities into racially segregated affinity groups. I've obtained internal documents that will will shock you. According to a trove of whistleblower materials, he says, Disney has launched a diversity and inclusion program called Reimagine Tomorrow, which includes trainings on systemic racism, white privilege, white fragility, white saviors, microaggressions, and anti-racism. Or this tweet that says, Disney claims America has a long history of systemic racism and transphobia. Yes, we were just thinking how trans, uh, transgender uh, people were horribly misrepresented or underrepresented at the uh, D-Day landing in 1944. What a tragedy that was. Sorry, just feeling a little sarcastic here. Disney tells employees they must take ownership of educating yourself about structural anti-black racism and not rely on your black colleagues to educate you, which is emotionally taxing. Here's another tweet. White employees are told to work through feelings of guilt, shame, and defensiveness to understand what is beneath them and what needs to be healed. They must listen with empathy to black colleagues and not question or debate black colleagues' lived experiences. Or this tweet. Disney tells employees they should reject equality or equal treatment and instead strive for equity or the equality of outcome. They must reflect on America's racist infrastructure and think carefully about whether or not their wealth is derived from racism. Here's another one from Christopher Rufo. Disney sponsored the creation of a 21-day racial equity and social justice challenge and actually recommended it to their employees. The challenge begins with a lesson on systemic racism, tells participants they've all been raised in a society that elevates white culture over all others. Next, participants are asked to complete a white privilege checklist. I am white. I am heterosexual. I am a man. I still identify as the gender I was born in. I have never been raped. I don't rely on public transportation. I have never been called a terrorist. And finally, he writes, participants are told they must pivot from white dominant culture to, quote, something different. The document claims that competition, individualism, timeliness, and comprehensiveness are white dominant values that perpetuate white supremacy culture. I mean, look, this is this you would expect to find this kind of stuff on a college campus somewhere, right? This is where this is where the radicals used to hang out and talk about the revolution, man, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna move this thing leftward, man. We gotta do this faster, much faster, man. But you don't expect this kind of thing to be taking place in the Disney boardroom. Christopher Rufo has another tweet here. Disney recommends that employees read a how-to guide called 75 Things White People Can Do for Racial Justice. It tells them things like defund the police, participate in reparations, decolonize your bookshelf, and find and join a local white space. I don't even know what that is. And also, here's another tweet. Finally, Disney, Disney has launched racially segregated affinity groups for minority employees with the goal of achieving culturally authentic insights. The Latin group was named Ola, the Asian group was named Compass, and the black group was named Wakanda. I mean, there's just, there's more, there's probably, I'm guessing there's probably about a, a, maybe a dozen of these tweets. But they have links to these documents. Crazy stuff. 
Andrea Woodberg says what the Disney Corporation is doing to the extent it discriminates against and humiliates white people is illegal. It's also immoral and it's profoundly un-American. If you are one of the more than 75 million people who voted for Trump and therefore believes in a colorblind free America, she says you need to boycott the company starting yesterday. I, you know, I'll let you make up your mind what the appropriate response is, but doesn't it bother you that something that was once a reliable source of wholesome entertainment is now so woke that they're trying to force feed, you know, the, the latest political fad to us and to our kids, or in this case, to my grandkids? I don't know. Books are a good thing. Trust me when I tell you, if you turn off the TV and spend a little more time reading good books. You can still have a lot of fun and appreciate the world and uh, not be as frustrated with whatever it is they're trying to force feed you. You just simply skip the feeding. Isn't that great how that works? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you're a new listener, if you're just joining us for the first time, I want to see what this wrong thing is all about. Is it all that I hear that it is? You know, I sincerely hope that I'm not scaring you. I do have really strong beliefs on these matters. But the overwhelming belief, this is the thing that drives me, is that, uh, that freedom is one of the most important things that we can have in our lives. And I say that with the understanding that we live in an increasingly unfree world in many ways. So if you want to be free, you had better be willing to step up and do your part to, to be a free individual. And that's really what it comes down to. I, I have friends who are very, very politically involved. And, and on the one hand, you know, I, I'm grateful that they're involved because I think they do a lot of good and I think that they, they act as a check on power seekers and opportunists who are just seeking power for the wrong reasons. Sometimes I worry, though, and it's not because I'm smarter or I'm more righteous than, than these friends, but I worry that the amount of time and moral energy that goes into politics ultimately ends up giving a sort of legitimacy to a system that could just as easily be delegitimized if more people simply refused to give their consent and would withdraw that consent. Politics also tends to, uh, to really appeal to the collectivist in us, which, which leads us to a, a, an interesting discussion because there can be right-wing collectivism. There, there are people who believe, well, you know, as long as it's uh, our party that's in power. You know, I'm, I'm looking back at uh, back the, the war on terror when it started. You know, after 9-11, George W. Bush, you know, started in with the Patriot Act and Congress passed it so quickly. And then invasion, invasion of uh, Afghanistan and the invasion of Iraq. And it was really interesting to see how people who under the Clinton administration, you know, conservatives and people who are all about we need to limit government. We need to make sure government isn't bending the rules. Suddenly it was all okay, you know, if the CIA is kidnapping people and torturing them, I'm sorry, extraordinarily renditioning them, you know, it's not really that bad of a deal. Besides, it might save lives. There could be a ticking bomb out there somewhere, and this is going to save lives. But they discarded their principles. This was hard for me. This was, this was the first real test I had as to, okay, 
do I go along with the crowd because it's more convenient or do I go with my conscience, which is telling me there is no reason to create the TSA and make sure we touch everyone's pee-pee before they get on the plane so that we know that they're safe. There's no reason to prosecute an endless war on terror, a tactic, as opposed to holding the people accountable who actually were involved with and and perpetrated an attack, most of whom, by the way, died in the 9-11 attack itself. How do you punish them? We're still trying to figure that out. But it was so difficult to watch my good friends, people that, uh, that... you know, listeners and, and audience members who, who loved me because I would, I would re- reliably be standing on the Constitution and talking freedom and limited government. And, and suddenly it's like, hey, Brian, you don't understand. This is such a threat. We have to abandon the rules. We have to go along. And I'm just not down with that. And it comes down to that idea of the individual versus the collective. And what they were embracing and some still continue to embrace today, is a form of right-wing flavored statism or collectivism as opposed to left-wing collectivism. But it's, it doesn't matter. You know, whether the boot on your neck is a left foot or a right foot doesn't matter. What matters is it's the individual versus the collective. And the, the individual matters because those individual rights are what protect you from government's power. They limit government's power over you. In the show notes today, I'm including a, a link to an article from Lawrence W. Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education. And this is a celebration of F.A. Hayek, whose birthday was uh, two days ago, May 8th. He was born in 1899, died in uh, 1992. And Friedrich August von Hayek won a Nobel Prize for Economics back in 1974. And he saw a lot of stuff happened during his lifetime. In fact, Larry Reed says, the 20th was perhaps the most collectivist century since the Incan Empire of the 16th. A tragic irony, since Hayek offered the world some of the most trenchant criticisms of the collectivist, collectivist poison. And there was an, there's a, a particular supreme rule that Hayek identified that was a death blow to those peddling collectivism. Now, Larry Reed explains, collectivism is a perspective on human life and action. It views people as a blob, requiring unified, if not unanimous, direction. Individualism is its opposite because it sees humanity as an abstract composed of unique individuals, each one with a mind and rights of his own. And while a collectivist would readily subsume the individual to such notions as majority vote or the general will, an individualist is wary of any person or group claiming to speak for others without their consent. So Hayek pointed out what ought to be obvious, but is often glossed over, namely that the plans of collectivist authority are bullied into place at the expense of the plans of individuals. And that means all forms of socialism are essentially collectivist, and that all criticisms of collectivism apply to socialism in one form or another, because socialism invariably utilizes collectivist rhetoric, and most importantly, it attempts to achieve its ends by collectivist methods. Taken together... The contributions of Hayek and his mentor, Ludwig von Mises, constitute such a complete and powerful dismantling of the socialist vision that socialists' only effective response has been, ignore them. So here's how Hayek puts it. Nearly all the points which are disputed between socialists and classical free market liberals concern the methods common to all forms of collectivism and not the particular ends for which socialists want to use them. For example, almost everyone favors education in the abstract. 
Now, an individualist would encourage a multiplicity of methods and institutions to acquire it through personal choice and private entrepreneurship. A socialist would support a collective approach, state schools, state curriculum, mandates from authority, one-size-fits-all. An individualist would never homogenize education by command. He might even quote Mao and say, and really mean it, let a hundred flowers bloom. A collectivist like the socialist Mao would see no purpose in a hundred flowers blooming except to cut them down to common, obedient stumps. To a collectivist, leaving the flowers alone or permitting endless varieties of them is tantamount, Hayek notes, to no plan at all. The plans of individuals are chaos by definition, whereas the plans of centralized authority are somehow inherently rational. What our planners demand, says Hayek, is the central direction of all economic activity according to a single plan. Laying down how the resources of society should be consciously directed to serve particular ends in a definite way. And Larry Reed says the distinction reduces to this, shall there be competition or not? Now, the individualist would answer that question with a very enthusiastic yes, because competition implies individual choice, accountability, a tendency toward efficiency. It implies experimentation with consumers by their free selections, ultimately deciding whose plans produce the best results. The collectivist, though, is instinctively anti-competition because the plan he wants may not be the one that other people choose in a competitive arena. Now, I'm going to hit the pause button here. And I'm going to remind you, you can find the link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. But I want you to apply this thinking to uh, what is going on right now with, with uh, whether it's masks or more likely vaccines. The push to get vaccines. I don't know if you saw this. I think it was, uh, I can't remember if it was Jimmy Kimmel or, um, oh shoot, the other cheery uh, late night host. Jimmy Fallon. Uh, they, they did this, uh, this video of doctors and nurses and they're all talking about how, hey, grow the F up and get the vaccine. And ha, 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 the audience is laughing. You tell those anti-maskers, ha, 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 I'm a doctor. I know what I'm talking about. You should do what I say. Grow the F up. And they're dropping F-bombs, and it's like, they are so edgy. They are so cool. And they, they absolutely have no clue how tone deaf and, and smug they come across. I mean, even if I was like, if I was inclined to, well, I was thinking about getting the uh, the vaccine. After being subjected to that, it'd be like, nah, maybe not. If if for no other reason that uh, there's not a handle on my head, and I'm not going to be steered by somebody who who wants to make decisions for me. You have to be the kind of person who is willing to assume individual responsibility, individual rights and claim those rights, use them, and defend them. And I'm not going to pretend it's an easy thing. Right now, there's a lot in society that has been collectivized, and it's, it's designed. You know, the, the, the whole purpose of collectivization is to make sure that uh, everybody is on the same page as a mandatory thing. Now, when government power is involved, that means the mandatory means it's backed at some level by men with guns and badges. People who will come, take you away, lock you in a cage, punish you, kill you if you try to resist. And I would just ask you to to just ask yourself, if an idea is really that good, does it require force? Does it require the threat of imprisonment, fines, or death to get people to accept it? Because to the collectivist, you know, the ends justify the means. To the individual, particularly the freedom-loving individual... 
The higher the ends, the more refined the means we must use to get there. Don't surrender your character, don't surrender your honor, and do not embrace the collectivism. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. You know, it's not surprising people get upset when you uh, are confronted with growing similarities between America today and uh, Weimar Germany in the 1930s. I mean, some people just jump right to, oh, Godwin's Law, you're going to invoke Hitler now? But if you have ever studied some of the similarities of how did the German people go from, say, 1933 you know, when Hitler came into power, to to where they ended up in 1945. In an utter disaster, millions of lives destroyed, so much sorrow, so much pain. How did they get there? That didn't come in one fell swoop. Milton Meyer's book, They Thought They Were Free, The Germans, 1933 to 1945. It's a very powerful read. It's not sensationalized at all. It is just a very down-to-earth study of human character. And the truth of the matter is, when, when changes came, they came very incrementally. And we see the same rule at work today. You know, think back to, to pre-9-11. How many people would have thought, well, you know, in order to feel like I can safely fly somewhere, I need to allow some government agent to peep beneath my clothes electronically or to physically touch my most private areas? Yeah, we'd have laughed people out of the room 20 years ago or more. To, to fact, 20 years ago before 9-11, we would have said, don't be ridiculous. It would never get to that. And yet, it's, that's the way it is. And you've added on things. I mean, incrementally. Is your, is your mask slipping over the tip of your nose? You're off the plane. You're on a no-fly list. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's crazy. But I understand. You know, the stigma, nobody wants to be compared to what the Nazis were doing. I get that. And yet there are comparisons. It's, and, and you take the word Nazi out of it and just say, look, totalitarianism, absolute control, that's what happened. And the German people, believe it or not, a lot of people recognize something here is not right, but they were all waiting. Everybody's just kind of waiting for that big shock that will, will wake everybody up and we'll all collectively look at each other and go, hey, hey this is not good. <laughs> Whoa, easy there, Adolf. We're not going that direction. But the big shock never comes. And that's a huge lesson for our time because if you're waiting for people to give you permission to stand up and, okay, finally, it's okay, let's all stand up and say, this is not good. It's not going to happen. Because if you weren't protesting what came last time, then this latest little movement towards totalitarianism isn't really that bad. If you didn't complain before, why aren't you complaining? You know, why not? This isn't that much worse. You got to be vigilant. I like how Victor Davis Hanson explains how we have been Sovietized in 10 easy steps. I'm just going to walk through these very quickly, but I think he's right on the money. Tell me if you don't see stuff like this happening in America today. In the Soviet Union, there was no escape from ideological indoctrination anywhere. A job in the bureaucracy or on a military assignment hinged not so much on merit, expertise, or past achievement. What mattered was, how enthusiastically are you supporting the Soviet system? Wokeness, by the way, is our new Soviet-like state religion. Number two, he says the Soviets fused their press with the government. Pravda, 
or truth, as it was called, was the official megaphone of state-sanctioned lies. Journalists simply regurgitated the talking points of their Communist Party planners. Well, we don't see that much, do we? (laughs) CNN? (laughs) Yeah, we see that a lot. A 2017 Harvard study found over 90% of the major TV's news network's coverage of the Trump administration's first 100 days was negative. Well, but Trump was part of the government, yeah. But he wasn't the right part, at least according to the media. Number three, the Soviet surveillance state enlisted apparatchiks and lackeys to ferret out ideological dissidents. Had you heard recently that the Department of Defense is reviewing its rosters to spot what it calls extremist sentiments? Extremist sentiments are are people who believe in limited government, who believe in the supremacy of the Constitution in limiting government power. Oh, and the Postal Service recently admitted it uses tracking programs to monitor the social media postings of Americans. CNN recently alleged the Biden administration's Department of Homeland Security is actually considering partnering with private surveillance firms to get around government prohibitions about scrutinizing Americans' online activity. Number four, the Soviet educational system sought not to enlighten but to indoctrinate young minds into proper government-approved thought. The Soviet Union, uh, let's see, this is number five, was run by a pampered elite exempt from the ramifications of their radical ideologies. I mean, you look at the woke Silicon Valley billionaires. They talk socialistically, but they live royally. Coke and Delta Airlines CEOs who hector Americans about their illiberality make millions of dollars a year. Then you have Oprah Winfrey, LeBron James, Mark Zuckerberg, the Obamas. Fascinating. They're they're part of the vanguard or part of the Politburo, I guess. Also, the Soviets mastered Trotskyation, Trotskyization, or the rewriting and airbrushing away of history to fabricate present reality. Are Americans any different when they indulge in a frenzy of name-changing, statue-toppling, monument-defacing, book-banning, cancel-culturing? Number seven, the Soviets created a climate of fear and rewarded stool pigeons for rooting out all potential enemies of the people. Since when did Americans encourage co-workers to turn to others for an ill-considered word in private conversation? Why do thousands now scour the Internet to find any past incorrect expression of a rival? Victor Davis Hansen says, Why are there now new thought criminals supposedly guilty of climate racism, immigration racism, or vaccination racism? Number eight, Soviet prosecutors and courts were weaponized according to ideology. In America, where and for what reason you riot determines whether you face any legal consequences. Politically correct sanctuary cities defy the law with impunity. Jury members are terrified of being doxxed and hunted down for an incorrect verdict. The CIA and FBI are becoming as ideological and politicized as the old KGB. And also, number nine, the Soviets doled out prices or prizes on the basis of correct Soviet thought. In modern America, the Pulitzer Prizes, the Emmys, Grammys, Tonys, and Oscars, they don't don't necessarily reflect the year's best work, but often the most politically correct work from the most woke. And finally, the Soviets offered no apologies for extinguishing freedoms. Instead, they boasted they were advocates for equity, champions of the underclass, enemies of privilege, and therefore could terminate anyone or anything they pleased. Victor Davis Hansen says our wokists are similarly defending their thought control efforts, forced re-education sessions, scripted confessionals, mandatory apologies, and cancel culture on the pretense that we need long overdue fundamental transformation. Rather, So if they destroy people in the name of equity, their nihilism is justified. Wow. Again, a link to the article found in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. 
That's a little bit spooky. Now, let's end on a happier note, or at least what I think is a little bit of a happier note. This is an article from French TV. Uh, Alarm is German anti-maskers co-opt Nazi resistor Sophie Scholl. They're upset, actually. They're co-opting her name. But, uh, you know, calling them anti-maskers, these are people who are simply trying to exist and who want to live their lives without being punished for not wearing a mask in public. You do realize the masks do not slow the spread of COVID. And places with the strict mandates have, have fared uh, as, as, uh, as they, they fared no better than any of the places that had no mask mandates whatsoever. But I think it's very good that these people have invoked, uh, the, that the resistors have invoked Sophie Scholl, the German resistance figure executed by the Nazis. She was actually born 100 years ago yesterday and has become an emblem of courage and a national hero for many. Now, this article says, but the legacy of the young woman has been sentenced to a brutal, of the young woman sentenced to a brutal death for distributing anti-Nazi pamphlets has been co-opted by Germany's anti-lockdown movement to the dismay of historians and the Jewish community. Well, those historians and members of the Jewish community who are upset about this have very short memories. And what these people are protesting against is the kind of thinking and the kind of one-size-fits-all totalitarian approach to public health or just uh, political uh, rule that uh, Sophie Scholl was standing up against. The article talks about how at a demonstration in April, one woman had a placard featuring a picture of Sophie Scholl draped on string around her shoulders. It read, The real damage is done by those millions who want to survive, the honest men who just want to be left in peace. In fact, one of Sophie's nephews, Julian Eicher, has prominently spoken at Corona skeptic demonstrations. I guess that's a bad thing, too. You're a skeptic. <laughs> they're, they're skeptical of the official response, just you know, so we're clear. Including on a stage decorated with white roses, evoking the name of Scholl's resistance group, the White Rose Society. Now, you've got to understand, she is the fourth favorite German in history. Now, interestingly enough, some of the uh, famous ones include people like Martin Luther. Uh, Karl Marx was a famous German that, that apparently people were quite fond of. Um, Konrad Adenauer, I don't know who that is. But Sophie Scholl is rightly celebrated as a hero of the highest order. Hundreds of schools and streets bear her name. And she is absolutely the kind of example of a person who stands up based on conscience and says, this is wrong when government is involved in wrongdoing. That's the real reason they're outraged. And they can't tear her down without appearing like the monsters that they are. So this is actually a good thing. This is The Brian Hyde Show.